Over the years, we have had many, many morning show conversations about our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. And sometimes it seems as though through the tireless work of historians and journalists and, uh, and, and others who have investigated his life and career and legacy, it seems as though there can't possibly be another story to uncover and share with the world. But here it is, and it comes to us in a fascinating new book called Lincoln's Lie, a true Civil War caper through fake news, Wall Street, and the White House. Uh, It is the story of something which takes place in 1864, around which there is perhaps still a a, a bit of of mystery. It reveals uh, the the depths of the difficulties that uh, the Union was experiencing uh, in the Civil War and uh, the anguish experienced by uh, Abraham Lincoln, as well as the immense pressure that he was under. And the story is also one of Lincoln's long-time interest in and savvy with the nation's press and, uh, and an instance in, in which uh, our 16th president perhaps went a little bit too far. Uh, the book is by Elizabeth Mitchell, who has a number of nonfiction books to her credit, including most recently Liberty's Torch, The Great Adventure to Build the Statue of Liberty. She happens to be a former executive editor of George Magazine. And again, her latest book is titled Lincoln's Lie, A True Civil War Caper Through Fake News, Wall Street, and the White House, published by Counterpoint Press. Elizabeth Mitchell, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a really interesting book. I want to ask you about a a brief line which is in your acknowledgments, in which you say, as always, I marvel at the support and generosity of the world's archivists. And of course, uh, it goes without saying, but I'm glad you say it, that if one is going to write any kind of meaningful book about Abraham Lincoln and uh, the mid-19th century, you better have access to some important archives. Just tell us briefly about uh, the kind of places you went and the sort of archives that proved to be so valuable for you in bringing this interesting story uh, to light? Well, when you get the opportunity to visit some of the archives, for example, in Washington, D.C., such as the Library of Congress or the National Archives, you just are overwhelmed by the fact that um, there are these people who know the material inside and out. They will help direct you to uh, various documents that could be of interest. And I, you know, I was sort of marveling, first of all, do we have the next generation that will come in and help guide us, uh, number one? And and then also just their, just their as I said, generosity. I mean, they, they would go and search out things for me even when I wasn't able to be in D.C. or in an instance um, with an archive that was at Princeton, uh, I learned about its existence sort of late in the process, and they threw open the doors for me, allowed me full access to all of these documents, um, you know, in fact, uh, sped along the processing of those documents so I could see them. And so it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, we, what we have collected for our knowledge and our um, wisdom is amazing in the United States, and I honor them all. Hmm. 
Before we get to this specific incident from 1864 around which your book revolves, uh, I think it would be really good for us to uh, hear a little more from you about something that is a very significant theme of your book, and that is Abraham Lincoln's uh, relationship with and understanding of the press. And uh, you tell us at one point that Abraham Lincoln demonstrated a savvy understanding of the press. He had been playing the press for a quarter century. Explain a little more about Lincoln's understanding of of the press and, in a sense, the sort of mastery that he demonstrated over the course of many years. Yes, well, I think I always believed that view of him as being sort of, you know, the um, natural man, the sort of almost even a clodhopper, as some of his critics would call him, um, who had managed to rise to the presidency and then, you know, distinguished himself uh, through throughout that presidency. Um, but in fact, he, he really did play the press going back a long way when he was a lawyer he would write um, anonymous pieces for the newspapers, taking on his um, opponents in the, uh, you know, in the courtroom, or uh, one time posing as uh, someone named Rebecca uh, in order to take down someone whose political views he opposed. But one of the more extraordinary things, and this was discovered by another researcher, but I was able to look into more of the details, is that he actually secretly purchased a German language newspaper right before the 1860 election. And he knew that that German uh, American vote would be very important to him. And it was a secret contract. They were not allowed to say that they were owned by Lincoln and they were to support the Republican platform throughout. So that's extraordinary, I think. Um, The other thing is when he was in the White House, staff members of his would write anonymous pieces for the newspaper. And there's even a suggestion that he himself wrote a piece for a Philadelphia newspaper because there's a correspondence between the editor and one of his cabinet members that says, you may be interested to see the president's article today. I forward it to you. And it was an anonymous piece that supported his views. Mm. Explain how your book begins. It does not begin in 1864, but rather begins in 1861, and and for very good reason. Yes, I mean, I wanted to I wanted to make sure before we got into this extraordinary story of the fake news that Lincoln lashed out against. Um, I wanted to show how deep he was into the world of the press. And so uh, when he was uh, when he won the election, instead of deciding to go to Washington directly on a train that would you know, take him to his, you know, take the oath of office, um, you know, and he could have sped there. He decided instead to take a 13 day train ride through the United States so that he could meet the local press and he could let the people see who he was and come to have this bond with him and also meet local officials. So it was, again, a very savvy media move. Um, And on that train ride, he happens to be uh, in contact with a journalist who's going along for the ride. Um, It's a writer for the New York Times. He's a very sort of flamboyant, famous um, young man uh, who wrote these witty letters for the newspapers. And he uh, gets entangled in telling a false story about Abraham Lincoln that, in fact, sort of dismarches the presidency right from the start. This story, which we'll just uh, mention briefly, is that because of 
of very frightening death threats uh, against Lincoln, uh, he ends up making the decision. He is persuaded to, in a sense, abandon this uh, slow journey back to Washington and speeds away in disguise. And the way that this particular reporter, Joseph Howard Jr., describes it leads to uh, many people imagining Abraham Lincoln maybe dressed in women's clothes or whatever, but but it is it is a kind of ridiculous image of the newly elected president and, uh, in a sense, uh, taints his image uh, before his presidency has even begun to, <laughs> has, 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 has gotten underway. And uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting story in, in part because it, it really underscores the power of the press and, uh, and, yes. and particularly the power of the press when it sort of gets into the hands of the, of, of the, of the people and is interpreted and perhaps misinterpreted. Yes. I mean, you can, the, the interesting thing about that anecdote is it's part of a longer story of which, you know, the, the substance of that story was true, but Howard had been locked in his hotel room while the president was being shuttled away in the darkness um, to avoid this assassination attempt. And so Howard, who loved his detail, you know, who would go to the scene and describe, you know, every single thing about, you know, the way a person looked or what have you, was, uh, says that he was, because he didn't have access to the visual, he just plucked something from his imagination and he put this cape and a scotch cap on uh, the head of the president. And so since Lincoln was known for his stove uh, pipe hat and, uh, you know, his more dignified cloaks, this was um, just looked at as absolutely laughable. And so what's interesting is, you know, similar to things that happen today, um, if if it matched up with already the critique that was going on in the country, people just ran with it, you know. So um, in this case, cartoonists, really loved it and they were they you know immediately started drawing what this would have looked like and so yeah lincoln regretted that he had run away in the night that way because it set him on a you know a weak course right from the beginning when the country was in such uh such absolute danger you quote a uh, one newspaper editor someplace saying what a farce what a coward. And and that was just yeah. one of many voices uh, derisively interpreting this, this moment. And one thing I appreciate about the way you tell this story is you really help us understand how, in fact, the threats were very real. And one can understand how there was perhaps great wisdom in, in Lincoln's decision. Uh, but uh, the way it ultimately unfolded was was unfortunate. Of course, the main event of your book, the main incident that, around which the book uh, revolves, is is a moment from early 1864 uh, when uh, the, the 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 war is still very much a struggle for the Union, and there have been very painful uh, reversals uh, in some very uh, very protracted and and awful battles. And in the wake of this, then, uh, emerges this proclamation from the president. Explain what this proclamation was, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, sort of the uncertainty or mystery that uh, very quickly uh, surrounded it. Yes. Well, so the the incident, when I first started looking into it, had just so much... uh, 
drama to it, frankly. I mean, when uh, so what you have to imagine is um, that there's this 17-year-old boy who's running through the streets of New York in the dark, uh, and he's carrying this proclamation from the president, and uh, he's running from newspaper office to newspaper office. Apparently, from he's coming from the Associated Press, which at that time was just serving, you know, a little over a dozen newspapers. Um, but he's 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 delivering it at 3 a.m. And so he goes into the newspaper offices. The editors are gone, but he gives it to the printers. And the printers look at it. They see it's this proclamation from the president. And without anyone there to tell them otherwise, they decide, two of the papers decide they're going to run it. And what it is is um, Lincoln uh, stating that the country is an absolute uh, disorder that that it's uh, a time of anguish that everyone needs to pray and fast um, in atonement for what we're going through, and that uh, 400,000 men must immediately report to the front, or a draft will start promptly. And so, in a country that is as is full of fear as it was right then, in a city where there had been bloody, bloody uh, riots over the draft a year before, this is the kind of news that could shake the nation to its core. And so uh, the peace runs, uh, you know, the streets erupt the next day. And down in Washington, apparently, Lincoln goes <clears throat> into the worst rage that anyone had ever seen him in in his entire presidency. It's an interesting moment. Uh, and as you describe it, it's really interesting to kind of hear about the way newspapers functioned and about the significance of the telegraph, which, of course, is in a sense yeah. a key player in all of this. In in a moment that's almost just kind of a throwaway line, but I think so interesting. You tell us that Robert Morse, the inventor of the telegraph, envisioned it as being something that would bring Americans together. But you tell us that actually the way the telegraph was utilized uh, in some respects did just the opposite. It could actually be a divisive tool and uh, and also a tool that could be misused for nefarious purposes. Yes. I mean, does it remind you of anything? <laughs> I mean, it seems to me so much to, to echo our time in terms of where we are with the Internet versus, you know, where they were with the telegraph, because it had been around for, you know, three decades at the time of my story. Um, but uh, and yes, Morse had this original idea. It was going to be great for the country. But basically what it did was um, made it accessible for people all across the country to see how different they were. They were getting the opinions of people in other parts of the country. And uh, and it was also something that was being used daily, you know, that if you wanted to change your date that night from going to the opera to going to dinner, you could do it over the telegraph. And so when Lincoln kind of goes to, he, he both, he loved the telegraph, he was addicted to it, um, similar <laughs> situations today. Um, he would live in the telegraph office at the War Department, sleep overnight on occasion. Um, he read, he tried to read every telegram that came through, even if it wasn't intended for him. And people worried about his very direct communication with the American people through the telegraph, um, that it was not edited or, you know, what we would say now, fact-checked. Um, so he had that relationship, but he also was 
frequently at war with it because it was um, communication out of control, out of his control. So uh, in this instance, when he cracks down on the newspapers, he also shuts down the telegraph along the East Coast and going out a bit into the West. And that would be like if our Internet were suddenly shut off um, out of a kind of fury of someone in D.C. Hmm. You tell us that when word of this proclamation first starts to reach some of the public, you know, there is there is uh, a great, uh, great shock and alarm and, and sadness. You uh, write at one point, uh, it is people thinking that more of their loved ones will be fed to the grisly war machine. Uh, but it goes beyond just ordinary citizens fearful for their own husbands or sons uh, perhaps being drafted and, and sent into the war. What were, what were some of the other kind of larger ramifications uh, uh, from this proclamation and the possibility that it was in fact fake or, or, if, or, or if that was not clarified? Well, there's, there's two that immediately come to mind, and one is that uh, there was a ship out in the harbor that very day, and it went over to Europe uh, basically every week to nine days, depending on the weather, you know, um, and it would convey the information that was uh, available from the United States over to Europe. Now, the Europeans, the French and the British, really wanted to recognize the Confederacy. They were kind of done with waiting to see how the war was going to turn out and wanted to just start conducting business with these two separate nations. And it had been Lincoln's efforts and um, the efforts of Reverend uh, Henry Ward Beecher to try to convince them not to do this. That would be immoral at this stage. So if this information, you know, gets on that boat that day and goes across to Europe, this could cause, you know, the immediate recognition of the Confederacy because they would see that the United, that the Union was having such trouble. So there's that dire consequence um, at hand. But the other thing is, I had never really recognized how much New York and particularly Wall Street were profiting off of the Civil War because I think we're very used to the kind of um, mournful accounts of the the. Just, absolute sadness of families and the letters between soldiers at the front and, you know, families back home. And we kind of think of the Civil War being this moment that every American really was caught up in the concern and sadness. But in New York, it was almost like a festive time. I mean, they say, you know, Vanity Fair was alive. There were, you know, the the rich were buying lots of luxuries from Europe. Um, The stock market was going crazy because people were betting on gold and other commodities. And uh, so, in fact, there was a, a large portion of the population that was just using war news to make a profit on Wall Street. So the other issue there is that the news was going to change the fortunes dramatically of certain people, and it would be people who knew the news was coming or were able to uh, profit off it the second it hit in New York. Mm. So this is uh, this is very significant on on several different levels, and I think that's a, an especially interesting idea that uh, if if these newspapers were shipped across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe, the news would would of course reach Europe, bogus news with all of the consequences you just outlined, and of course this is 
decades before there is the telephone. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, that's how you got news to to Europe. And once that news was, in a sense, dispatched, it was all but impossible to to stop it, to rein it back in and so on. It's, I really appreciate the detail you, 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 you share with us to help us understand what life was like in 1864, how information was disseminated, and, uh, and the ways uh, in, in which there were just sort of different rules. And yet you've also pointed out uh, some ways in which some of this seems remarkably similar to some of the dynamics going on in our own life today in, uh, in the year 2020. Um, without giving too much away, we should leave it to our listeners to uh, experience uh, all of the uh, kind of uh, twists and turns of the story uh, by reading your book. Uh, maybe you just want to sum up just how complicated this picture ultimately gets in terms of who was responsible and what this supposedly bogus proclamation, in fact, was. Yes. Well, I'll I'll reveal. I did write it with the. I actually did want to give my readers the same kind of excitement that I had when I was unearthing the different, as you say, twists and turns of the story. So it is sort of set up as a, in a way, like a crime thriller or something, because the investigation follows this path and you, and you keep thinking you've come across the culprit and then it's somebody else. But uh, the one thing that is I can readily uh, reveal because it, it, the, even the public started to get wind of this fairly early on is that, uh, suddenly, on that same day that the military goes in and arrests everyone, the newspapers start saying that actually the, it, it might be true because um, they are getting word from Washington that there was an order that the president signed for 300,000 troops. Now, then, because of you know history, time going by, we are able to go into the archives and see actually what Lincoln had done. And he had written out an order for 300,000 men that very same day. Uh, he signed it, and he put it in his drawer uh, and did not send it out. And so the theory one has to start to interpret is that actually it's a leak and he's furious that it's a leak. And so then it gets into who would leak it and why, you know, was it a spy? Was it, um, you know, was it Democrats because they wanted to uh, shame him before the Republican convention? Was it Lincoln himself because he wanted an excuse to shut down those Democrat newspapers before um, the election year really went into full swing, um, you know, or was it a more intimate betrayal? So that's that's where the story goes. Mm. It's incredible. It really, really is. And uh, and and it very much does read like a thriller. And uh, we will leave it to our listeners well, to uh, to explore this story, which also reveals much more than we might uh, have already known about Abraham Lincoln, about his wife, and about some of the key figures around him. Uh, at this uh, important and difficult moment in our nation's history. The book, again, is titled Lincoln's Lie, A True Civil War Caper Through Fake News, Wall Street, and the White House, published by Counterpoint Press. And I want to finish by uh, reading a quote of Mrs. Lincoln that is part of your book, when at one point she writes, It is a sad age of the world in which we live. Joy does not live in these days. Perhaps when the storm is over we may see why we have been tried so fearfully. 
one of my favorite moments in this great book, Lincoln's Lie. Elizabeth Mitchell, the author. Elizabeth Mitchell, thank you for being part of the morning show today. Thank you so much for this conversation. I loved it. Thank you.